It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. This episode is with an incredible lawyer who's with an organization who's made changes in Georgia and it's reverberated around the country. And with us is Sarah Garrity, attorney with the Southern Center for Human Rights, who has repeatedly done work for those who don't have an advocate. Um, They may not be able to hire a lawyer. And a organization that finds and goes after the systematic prejudices that have been in our system and affect minorities, affect people without money. Um, And she's going to talk to us about some of the most recent issues. So first, welcome, Sarah. Thank you, BJ. I'm so glad to be here. So what I want to dive into is what has been in the paper a great deal, and that is the privatization um, of the courts by particularly smaller jurisdictions and the bail that's set and the fines that are assessed about people with people who could never afford them and the complications it creates and, and really almost a destruction of people's lives for something as simple as a as a speeding ticket or an ordinance violation where you get assessed a fine and you can't afford to pay it. And uh, I think y'all have been fighting against this for a while. Um, so how, how did this come to the attention of the Southern Center as a focus to, to make change? Well, as you know, the Southern Center um, has for years represented people facing the death penalty. So um, moving into the area of representing people in misdemeanor cases was was quite a sea change for our practice. But we did it for a couple of reasons. The first is that we were getting a lot of complaints from people who were coming before the misdemeanor and traffic courts in Georgia. And um, what we were hearing from those people is that they were being Um, locked up or threatened with incarceration only because they didn't have the money to pay criminal fines and fees. You know, these are the courts um, with which most people come into contact at some point, right? I mean, most of us are going to get a traffic ticket or a ticket for... Can I plead the fifth for my traffic (laughs) ticket experience? Thank you. You may, you may. But many of us have had this experience of of coming before court. And, you know, I, I wonder if I might share... Um, share a story from a case that we had just recently. Tell me about it. Okay. So this was someone who uh, was in a municipal court that shall remain nameless in the Atlanta area. This was someone who had a a ticket for having an expired tag and no proof of insurance. And let's just start with the fact that those are two offenses that are largely associated with poverty in the first place. Um, Poverty or forgetfulness. I will plead forgetfulness (laughs) and I got pulled over. No joke. It's on. This is public record. But, you know, I got pulled over, but I could go and pay my tag immediately. Right. 
And the folks you're talking about, the reason wasn't forgetfulness. It was their circumstances in life and inability to pay. And that's certainly what it was in this case. And, and so here's what happened. The, this um, gentleman went to court. He was assessed a fine of $1,200 and um, additional fees amounting to several hundred dollars. And then only because he couldn't pay that on or before the day of court, he was put on probation with a private company. When he couldn't pay the monthly amount that they demanded every month, um, this is what the, the company did. It required him to come back more and more frequently. And this is a sort of tactic that we often see with these private companies. If you can't bring in the amount that they demand, they have you come back once every two weeks, once every week, in some cases, a couple of times a week. So wait, I want to slow you down yeah. for a minute because yeah. I want to back up. So the initial fine amount, mm -hmm. that in of itself sounds shocking for, for what it is. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm, th yeah, that's and, absolutely and right. And that ties into what's been in the media a great deal. And I think y'all have been a part of some of the articles where there's a discussion that a lot of cities actually rely a great deal on their citizenry or those driving through it paying for the government instead of just assessing property taxes or whatever to pay for the services. It's almost like, I hope you come and violate the law here because we need the money and yep. we're going to charge you for it. That's absolutely right. A lot of places keep track of the amount um, of the extent to which like municipalities rely on courts for portions of their income. And there are lots of places in Georgia and lots of places all over the country that rely on their courts like upwards of a third sometimes even more, um, to fund their, their their city revenue. A lot of these places pre-budget these amounts and so therefore really expect for these um, for citations to occur and for uh, people to come to court and be required to pay those fines. It is um, a really perverse way of using what is supposed to be a justice system. Uh, but sadly, more and more these days, we, we are really seeing this over-reliance uh, over on courts to fund, uh, to fund municipalities. And it has some really unfortunate consequences, as it did in, in the case that, that we're just chatting about. What, what eventually happened in this case was that uh, a warrant was put out for this gentleman. And it a was, warrant for arrest. A in warrant other words, for arrest. For not paying that fine yep. that wasn't because of forgetfulness, but because they literally could not pay the probation office. I, and I guess this private company has a way of letting the court know to issue a warrant that they are violating the probation and the order of the court. Right. And, you know, this is, we all agree, actions have consequences. Offenses need to have certain penalties. Like, everyone agrees with that, right? But here, this was someone who actually was really trying to make it work. He had paid 900 plus dollars on this case. Wow. And he had reported 12 times to the probation office. But the, the uh, warrant said, uh, you know, go ahead and arrest this guy because he hasn't paid all of his fines and fees and because we wanted him to report 24 times instead of 12 times. Now, here's what the point that I want to make. Um, when how, how do you keep a job when you have to report to the probation office for a, a what is essentially a very minor traffic offense and you have to do so once a week 
or even once every two weeks? How do you keep a job? And the answer is you don't. You don't. And, and you even don't. if you say, you know, because some people would sit here and say, well, you get a lunch hour and you can go. But for instance, I don't, not sure that we're not saying where this is, but let's look at the metropolitan Atlanta area. If I work in downtown Atlanta, but I got a ticket up in Gwinnett County um, with the best of traffic or taking whatever way get there, that is sometimes two hours round trip, right? plus actually going to the office and sitting there. And sitting there. Waiting to meet with the probation officer. Exactly. For an hour, two hours or more. That's right. So you've got four to six hours. You can actually get to the doctor quicker. And doctors oh, are slow. Man, yeah, yeah, definitely. Than, than going to a probation office yeah. on a nonviolent offense. Right. Because these are these offices that you're talking about and these offenses in these courts, they are not handling the violent cases that create so much fear in the community. That's right. That's right. Um, so, and, and, you know, this is a national phenomenon, of course, and we saw a lot of this discussed um, um, through the uh, Department of Justice report discussing Ferguson, this idea of, of revenue-generating policing and revenue-generating courts. And, of course, so often these practices are visited against uh, communities of color. And, and, that's and as a reminder, Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown um, no, yes, was shot, killed. There were riots afterwards and a lot of a whole lot of things with regard to the criminal justice system with that. But it created a focus nationally on what was happening to the minority population of Ferguson. And again, the same thing, the money that was involved, how it was involved and how you're dragging people down. Mm -hmm. um, and the federal government got involved and did a report afterwards that you're referring to and uh, highlighted things. And yet it, what from what you're saying, a, a federal report that shows the injustice of this is not enough necessarily to move um, the compass, particularly when we're talking about privatized companies who are doing this for profit. Right. And, and, and an interesting uh, fact about um, our state of Georgia is that Georgia is the epicenter of the private probation industry. We have about 30 private probation companies operating in over 600 uh, misdemeanor and traffic courts in the state. And as a consequence, we have the highest number of people on probation of any state in the country, far, far higher. I think it's about four times as high as the next highest state. Uh, I think that's largely attributable to the fact that we have this booming private probation industry. Um, Eighty percent of people in, in uh, on misdemeanor probation in Georgia are represented by by uh, private companies, and and it's just been our experience over the last decade that these companies are fundamentally incompatible with the fair administration of justice in our misdemeanor courts. You can't serve two masters, one master being you know, the court and the justice system, and the other master being the bottom line and profit. Uh, they are just incompatible, and we see this in case after case, year after year. I just don't think the founding fathers, when they set up all of this elaborate system of justice, which was what made this country great to begin with, the fact that an individual has a right, that you're not, um, that you can have an attorney, that you can have a voice. And whoever would think that a corporate entity would be the ones deciding the liberty of someone 
Can I share another story? Oh, well, I love okay. stories. You can tell. So this is the case of a, a man named Mr. Edwards, who's from a um, was from a rural community in South Georgia. Mr. Edwards got a, a uh, citation for burning leaves in his yard without a permit. And uh, he came to court on the appointed day, and he was given a fine of $500. Uh, because, for burning leaves. For, right. And because he couldn't pay that amount on the day of court, he was put on probation again with a private company that charged 523 additional dollars for uh, supervising, and I use that words in air quotes, supervising him on probation. Now, probation is a very intrusive arrangement, right? I mean, this is a, a thing where when you're on probation, you there's a whole list of things that you can't do, right? You can't hang around nefarious people. You can't drink alcohol. You have to consent to have officers search your person and your property. You have to pay. You have to report all these things. And if you don't do them, you face incarceration. So he was put on probation for a year. And because he couldn't pay a down payment on this now thousand plus dollars that he owed, he was hauled off to jail where he remained until someone in his family came to essentially like ransom him out only because he didn't have money to pay. Moreover, he spent a year on probation. We, My office encountered um, Mr. Edwards after he had been on probation for over a year. His sentence should have expired. It did, in fact, expire. And yet this probation office was requiring him to come in and to report and to pay weekly, uh, even though his case was over and he was to be off probation and threatening to jail him all, you know, all the while. So these, Wait, how how when his case is yeah, over, yep. what was the justification that they gave or did they ever give one? This was among a number of cases that we later discovered was on the company's, quote, expired pay docket. That meant that the sentences were over, but they were still essentially hounding people for for payment. And so like the phone calls, you know, when you don't for poor people who, you know, bought finance something, perhaps you buy something in a store, a washer and dryer and you finance it forever. You know, they call, 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 call. Right. Uh, but that's a private arrangement you made. This is the government. This is the government. And the difference here being that they can uh, take you and lock you up um, under the way that we do things in our legal system right now. And and that is... Uh, uh, just so fundamentally unfair. And we continue to see various variations on this theme of um, criminalization of poverty and threatening jail, taking the people to jail because they don't have money. So I want to go back to this, ex because you just said that it, it had expired. So basically, they just shift from a model of we we can't legally, like at this moment, because the sentence is expired, if we went to court, a judge could not tell them if he had gotten to court, judge would say, well, it's over. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever you collected, you collected, and, and I'm not going to go any further. But because it is a private company, they switch over to the model, like when you buy f something financing and just never quit calling you till you pay. And of course, it's utterly illegal to have done that. And that company, we, uh, my office filed a lawsuit against the company and the company is no longer 
in business in the state of Georgia because uh, it, it had turned out that it was employing these kinds of tactics to um, abuse and incarcerate a lot of other people as well. But that is one of the tactics that the companies have used in the past. And and in fact, we still see it today. I, had a, I have a colleague who... Wait, before you go to yeah, that, can yeah, I ask yeah. you one question? Sure. So is it, you know, when you play the game whack-a-mole and you hit, yep. you hit them down and then yep. it pops up somewhere else? Absolutely. So did this company that was involved in this case with this gentleman pop up somewhere else under another iteration or is it still existing really just not under the corporate name that you know it as? That's an excellent question. That that particular company does not exist that I know of anymore. However, another private company swept, you know, came, came right in and took its place. And one of the reasons for that is that Georgia, and this is not true, their private probation, the industry exists in other places, but one of the reasons that it is so entrenched in Georgia is that um, our legislature, in its in its wisdom, uh, essentially codified, uh, gave uh, gave municipalities the, uh, the option of contracting with private companies to provide for probation services. It's something that that the industry refers to as offender funded services. And I am here to tell you that this is a bad idea. It 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 appeals on the surface to. Uh, folks who run government entities because they are told, uh, they're, they're sold the system by saying you don't have to pay for the cost of supervision. And, and, and you can understand, perhaps the legislature who's not educated on this at that point, it sounds good to say to your constituents, listen, we spent X amount of dollars on, these are your tax dollars. We're going to stop using your tax dollars. We're going to make the bad people mm-hmm. um, pay for it. But then it creates an un inequity and for things that would not put you um, in any sort of status to say you're, quote, a bad criminal um, that we should all fear and and, and have a legitimate reason in being um, wanting an incarceration or a punishment to that level. And, and boy, do we all pay on the other end in terms of loss of jobs, cost of incarceration, destabilizing people um, who, uh, who lose their jobs and lose their place to live and that sort of thing. It and just then, they're on go- then they need government subsidies. Yep. Their children have issues. Yep. The education, you know, the investment in education and people leave school to go to work. They don't get their high school degree. Right. Um, it, it goes on and on and on. Right. And it traps people. Right. And again, I don't I don't mean to suggest that um, that these that, that there shouldn't be consequences for violating the law, violating rules. We, we agree there have to be consequences. I just think it is past time to rethink how we are handling these lower level offenses. Um, and I have a lot of, of thoughts about how to do that. I mean, one would certainly be looking at the the exorbitant fines. I mean, sometimes we see cases in which folks who have like a, you know, a bunch of junk in their yard, that, that kind of, you know, uh, uh, old car in the yard and a wash tub and that. And I saw one case recently where someone had a $6,000 uh, fine. Okay. Uh, you, for... Can I tell you, it's hard to shock me because as my listeners know, you know, in the business for a <laughs> sure. long time, but I thought you were going to say something like a $500, a $1,000, yeah. $6,000 yeah. for yeah. having junk in your yard. Yeah. I, that doesn't, doesn't make any sense. No. People can't pay it. It sets people up to fail. And and so you got, you know, you got the fine. 
that money tends to go to the, the city or the county, but then you also have fees that go to the probation company. Then you also have surcharges that go to various state funds. Like, And, and let's talk about the surcharges a yeah. little bit in that I know that when I go to court or I'm getting ready to go to court, I have to say to a client, okay, you're going to pay a $1,000 fine. Right. And then if it's a drug offense, there's a 50 percent surcharge and there's a jail construction fee and there's a probation supervision fee and then there's another fee. And by the time I'm done, you know, and even in a serious offense, you know, a thousand dollars is more like two twenty four hundred dollars. Right. On and on and on and on. The jail, the, the construction fund, the library fund, the police officer's retirement fund, the spinal cord injury fund. And and I'm not saying that these are not, you know, important funds. It's just that it's just that we have come to a place where the punishment does not fit the crime. And in a, in a weird way, we're wanting people to break the law so we could fund people with other things that maybe we should just be paying for and budgeting for because as a society, we need them. You know, it's that full disclosure. There's a reason why a long time ago in contracts, the tiny print, you know, you can't have the tiny print. It has to be a little bit bigger so you can actually read it. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, and yet our legislators are creating tiny, tiny, tiny print Mm -hmm. that no one could ever know um, would be the consequence of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yep. Crazy. Yeah, it is. And it, and it really, this is this is an issue that affects, you know, just hundreds of thousands of people. And so it's one that we um, feel that it's very important to focus on to keep, keep people's attention on. Is there any way or do you feel like that there's some folks in the legislature and the governmental sectors that are starting to realize, regardless of party, because I'll say this, you know, I know we get into, to be careful with politics a little bit, but, but that there are champions of justice on both sides of the aisle who understand it. Yeah. Um, Is there anything shifting that you've seen? I think so. I really think so. I'm I'm feeling really hopeful about it. I mean, we we certainly have seen since the Ferguson report that we talked about a moment ago, I think a shift in the, in the way, uh, in the public dialogue about this issue, about the criminalization of poverty and the way our criminal legal system treats people who have, um, who are facing uh, misdemeanor offenses. There is a realization that that some of the ways uh, that we're operating may need a second look. That's certainly been the case here in Georgia, where our governor's Criminal Justice Reform Council have taken a, a hard look and made some positive changes. Um, and and they and the council deserves great credit for that. But but. I want to make the point that even today, after after the council's recommendations, after some legislation that was aimed to get at some of these issues, we still really have not retreated from this place um, where it has become normalized to take away people's liberty because they don't have enough money to pay a criminal offense. And let me ask you this, because a lot of places I'll go or smaller courts where especially with younger offenders, they'll say, well, we want you to go work at the recycling center Mm -hmm. or we want you to do work in exchange for it. That still sometimes can create the same consequences that you're talking about financial in that you are still having to take a day off of work to go do that community service. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I live in a very rural area and when I drive into the city, I will see you know, the work and they're wearing the slip ashes, you know, community service worker mm-hmm. and they're picking up trash, you know, all on the road. Yep. Um, 
And that in some ways, you know, people look at it and say, gosh, that's great. You know, they're out there and they're sweating and they're picking up the trash and they're learning a lesson. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's taking away from providing for their family. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what the system is missing right now is individualized consideration of what should happen on, like a case by case basis. Right. Because the volume of cases that come before these little courts and there are hundreds of them um, are not don't. You know, don't permit for a judge to make those kinds of individualized determinations about what's happening in a particular case. And part of the reason for that circles right back to the fact that many places rely on these courts to make money. And it's, it's really interesting that there's a, a libertarian public interest group, um, Institute for Justice, that has just filed a, a, a lawsuit uh, contesting uh, the practices in the city of Doraville, here, a, a suburb of, of Atlanta. I've had some clients yeah, there yeah. with some very hefty fines. Right. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, what what the, the folks at the Institute for Justice found is that the city of Doraville relies on its court for, I think, a third to a fifth to a third of its uh, revenue. It pre-budgets, uh, meaning it sort of, you know, it anticipates and expects that uh, this money will come in from its court. And that um, and the, the interesting legal claim is it's a due process bias claim. What that means is that the claim is you can't have a judge um, or a municipality that has a financial interest in churning money from its court, essentially. Because because it's in the budget line. You were going to get X amount of dollars right. at a Doraville Municipal Court. Let's just set a number. Yep. Let's say this year we're going to get $500,000 from it. Mm-hmm. And if that judge knows that, yep. those police officers know that, right. those probation officers know that, and really the number is much higher. Right. Um, and that what it sounds like they're saying in this lawsuit is how can it be a justice system, independent judge Mm -hmm. who's deciding what the application of law should be when you know in the back of your mind and you have a mandate in essence that you must produce that much money or our city can't survive and provide the services, including paying for you, judge, probation officer, police officers, um, enforcement of, of misdemeanor, you know, residential enforcement of different laws, you know, when they go through and look at people's yards and say, like you're saying, there's a bunch of junk. We have to clear it out to keep the property values high. Yep. Yep. And I, I mean, and I'm, I'm here to say that the, the harms that come from the way we do business in these courts are real. And, you know, the, the one that I, that I lose sleep over at night is, where you have a situation, and I've had many clients in this situation, I'm not kidding, where they they uh, lose a, a child or their children to state custody because they are taken into custody um, on a you know misdemeanor probation violation. Their children are taken by the Department of Family right. and Children's Services right. and put in foster right. care. Now, that is a harm. I mean, if uh, can you imagine the rage, you know, the rage I would feel as a parent um, watching my kid get taken from my care uh, over my inability to pay for a, a traffic ticket. I mean, that just should not happen. And we, we need to be working to make sure that we don't have uh, our, our criminal legal system operating in that way. And in those communities, particularly minority communities, you have not just that traffic enforcement to get money, but also 
you know, wanting probable cause to pull someone over so that you have the opportunity to search to hope that you find something more. Mm-hmm. You know, that right. that pre it's a there's a legal term pretextual. Sometimes it's legitimate. Like if you are speeding, um, they do have a right to pull you over. But we know from so many other cases that, you know, if BJ and Sarah are riding in the car together and mm-hmm. I get pulled over, I'm smiling and handing my driver's license. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. I know my tag is expired. Yes, sir. I know I can go here, Miss Bernstein. Here's your ticket. You don't have to go to court if you just pay it in advance. Absolutely. And they have a nice online system, which the online system tags on, you know, $15 more because you're paying it in advance to mm-hmm. go there and process it. And you've done it. But then take it to the family who... Um, perhaps they're Hispanic, perhaps they're black, whatever it is, and they're and they are a targeted community sometimes to be suspicion of when you sit there and smile, oh, it's not go on with your day, Mr. Cook or Mr. Jones. It's can you step out of the car? Or well, I smelled an odor or you know, there's all these things that can be said. I know again, having been a prosecutor and defense attorney and reading police reports, it's like the same reason given why someone gets out of the car. I think I talked on one of these episodes. I had a client who said, they said his taillight was out. And fortunately, and then they go, we smell marijuana. There was zero marijuana in the car. He had his, you know, cell phone was able to capture that the tag was paid for. They just didn't contemplate anybody filming the quote reasons they always give to pull someone over um, of his race at that time of night, hoping that they get something more. Well, and here's a, a, a point that I think is an important one, which is that these kinds of revenue-generated um, uh, and racially, often racially discriminatory, um, uh, quote, justice practices, they really undermine communities' faith in the legal system. They undermine people's faith in the police, in judges, in the courts, and in the rule of law itself. And that, I think, is perhaps the most dangerous thing that we risk when we continue with these practices. And, you know, I, I just think of one other example from um, one of our cases from a few years ago in which we represented, again, somebody who was on probation with one of the small companies. She was on probation for some you know very minor traffic offenses. She didn't have any money, and she was being threatened with, um, with jail. She sold her kitchen mixer to raise funds to pay. At some point, she asked about, could she do community service? And I kid you not, BJ, the community service option at this probation provider's office was cleaning the office of the private probation company. <gasps> Can you imagine? I mean, this was like the, these. This is the extent to which we have um, fallen. Right, um, cleaning the the bathroom of the private probation office was considered community service. That's a breakdown. Yeah, that's a it's breakdown. a total breakdown. Yeah, yeah. And as we're getting drawing to a close, one thank you for sharing all this because I think you know again part of the purpose of this podcast is. If we know, if we really understand it and get behind the two to three minute story or the quick thing that we read in the paper to realize what what we've done, that maybe we can fix it. And we've been doing it. I've Everybody knows I selected tea appropriate for my guests. And this particular tea had um, the box says it's an earthing, calming, Tulsa, sweet, licorice, powerful ashwanga <laughs> um, tea. But they gave it a name, and it's Gratitude Tea. And we have gratitude for you 
for the Southern Center for Human Rights, for those who work for the public interest in law um, that protects us. I mean, I know at lawyers, we get a tough, uh, tough rap, um, but there are a lot of lawyers who are the, you know, truly the foot soldiers for justice. So thank you for sharing this today. And I want to have you back because I know there's more things brewing over there that y'all are going to come out and uh, take a get it into the courts. Um, and that's the other part of what the Southern Center does is that you still have faith in the Constitution. You know, you find these horrible things, but you know, get access to the courts, get access to a higher court, have the judges who really look and read and listen. And it's how we have a peaceful society to improve as opposed to chaos. So thank you, Sarah. And my pleasure. I'm a huge fan, BJ. Bye. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. Bye.